welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We continue in 1 John today. And uh, I bring you a message on a subject uh, seldom preached, but the Word of God has brought us to it. Really, a person seldom thought of by many believers today. And yet, though he is somewhat untaught, this individual is one of the most important figures in biblical history and in biblical revelation. John introduces us here for the first time in his epistles to the one known as the Antichrist who is coming. It will be a sober message, but I believe revealing to you, maybe even connecting with your understanding of what the Bible teaches about the last days in which we are. So let us come with open minds and ready hearts to the word of God today. We're now arrive at verses 18 to 24. They, are, they, they kind of move in one long paragraph in our English version, and I think that's pretty accurate to the thinking of John. But today, we're going to just take verse 18 and cover the very first part of it, this, this statement about the Antichrist who is coming, and then in the weeks to follow, a couple weeks probably, we'll finish out verses 19 through 24. So will you hear with me the word of God? John wrote to these believers, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. This is God's time-revealing word. May we hear it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. As I said, today I'm going to introduce you to some teaching on one of the most important but undertaught, if that's a word, (laughs) I just invented it if it isn't, uh, figures of biblical history. Now don't worry, or maybe you might go away disappointed, I'm not going to spend any time speculating to tell you about his identity, this Antichrist who's coming in the future. A lot of people, particularly in our days and times, have speculated wildly about who he is, but that's not a surprise because over the span of history since this was written, a lot of believers have thought they identified who the Antichrist was at a point in time in history. Over the centuries, there have been many candidates for the title and all have come and all have gone and all the other scriptures around which this man's life is built were not fulfilled. I don't believe the Bible tells us the identity of this individual, but those who are alive when he rises and who have biblical revelation will know who he is. I'm going to talk today not about his identity, but what the Bible reveals about his personality, what his, his importance and what we know about him and what his reign, and that's a, an accurate word, his domination of planet earth will be like, what it'll be like for non-believers and believers, what his reign will be like, and what his future is certainly to be like, and how it relates to us. 
Antichrist. The word finds its, uh, like I said, its appearance in John's writing for the first time. He is the one that uses it the most of the biblical writers in his epistles. Now, this man is, in my opinion, and others might agree, second only to Jesus in terms of his influence upon the world. I'm going to explain that in a moment. But it's interesting that today, even today, with all that's going on and the great interest in the times of the end, even today, many Christians across the denominational spectrum really aren't paying much attention to what the Bible teaches about this individual. In fact, in a lot of Christianity, a lot of the Christian denominations today, the the idea or the, the, the truth about Antichrist is untaught because he's regarded as either unimportant or what you read in the Bible here in John's epistles or in the epistle of Revelation uh, or the, 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 the book of Revelation or in the Old Testament prophets, it's all symbolic language. It doesn't talk about a real person in real time, either in the past or in the future. Many Christians believe that. He is simply a symbol of the wickedness of man and how bad the wickedness of man could get. Just a symbol. We don't really need to know anything more, and we can't. Others teach that, yes, this was a figure in human history, but he's already come and gone. These are believers who hold a view known as preterism, and they believe that virtually all of biblical prophecy has already occurred in history. And uh, they believe that the book of Revelation primarily was fulfilled in the distant past, before A.D. 70 and at A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was, was uh, sacked and burned by the Roman legions. And in the period of time just before that, they believe that's when the book of Revelation was fulfilled. And they believe that the Antichrist has come and gone and his name was Nero. They believe that he was the emperor, the evil emperor, although he was not that much more evil than a string of the other evil ones, but I won't get into that. But there are many sincere believers that think about the Bible as ancient history when it comes to prophecy. Prophecy is irrelevant. There are still others that say that, uh, that prophecy is mostly figurative, and if, if you take a look at the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation doesn't talk about the future. It talks about the rhythms of world history that have occurred and recur over and over again. And most of the language in Revelation is symbolic. Or if it is literal, it speaks about people in, in, in past history. And a lot of these people believe that the Antichrist has come and gone and will come and go again. Now, I don't want to offend maybe your past religious upbringing, but a lot of these Christians believe that the Antichrist is really a series of people, and they are the popes, the popes of the Catholic Church. A lot of people today believe that. I've read them over the last week as I've researched this issue. The people you might read in the Christian bookstore, theologians of, of, of real fame, believe that today or have believed it. So, when you think about these points of view, you might ask, well, pastor, what, what point of view do you hold? And in fact, what point of view does our church hold? Because, you know, we're specific in our doctrine about the things of the end. We are what you might call people who are literalists. We take a look at the book of Revelation and we interpret it 
like we interpret any other book in the Bible. We take it for its normal values and we take the impact of the language as normal and literal, grammatically and historically interpreted just like we would any other book unless it is clearly symbolic. And we take a look at the book of Revelation and when we read it in a literal fashion and we place it alongside of the many other prophecies, did you know that the book of Revelation has over 400 Old Testament references in it? What a key to understanding the book. It is connected to the vast ocean of prophecies from the rest of God's word, particularly in the Old Testament. And we look at it and we compare it to how the Bible interprets itself. And we have come to believe as literal interpreters that we believe the book of Revelation speaks about times yet future. And John here was referring to a time yet future. And the name for us, we are not preterists. We are not historicists. We are futurists. So if you want to know what I think and how I look at the Bible as I interpret it normally and literally for how the words come across as they were meant to be written and understood, I am and we are in this church futurists. Doesn't mean we don't fellowship with others that have a different point of view. Not at all. We gather around the gospel and around the classic pillars of orthodox teaching. But when it comes to these things, we teach our convictions here. And I teach my convictions here. And so that's what I've done when I've come to this particular epistle. And uh, so we, we look at this and we look at Bible prophecy as, some, as, as a gathering of teachings, some of which has been fulfilled in the past, some of which has yet to be fulfilled. And the book of Revelation particularly is yet to come in most of its parts. So if this last view is the most scriptural in my mind, and it's the view of our church, I'm I'm happy to tell you that as I study my Bible, I believe it was also the view of the churches of John. If you take a look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, you're going to get a couple clues about that. He writes to them as, as believers, they were children of God, children he calls them, but they were not that exalted in the faith yet, they were still a lot to learn, but they had been taught by John and other apostles and other teachers in the history of their church. And he declares some things. He says, first of all, it is the last hour. He declares something about the times in which the church is living. The last hour. In other parts of the New Testament, the phrase last days is used, and I believe they're they're interchangeable. What is the last hour? Or you could ask it a different way. What are the last days? Many people believe that the last days are the, the very final days of earthly history that are talked about in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18. They are yet to come, but we're getting close. I'm going to correct you a little bit on that because the Bible in numerous places uses the phrase last days, and yet the writers say we are in the last days. So they can't be coming. They must be present. And so what the Bible teaches is that we are in a period of history that is God's last period of working with mankind, and it's called the last days or the last hour by John. And it covers a period of biblical time and in human time that started at the ascension of Jesus back to the throne room of God after his, his satisfactory death and his resurrection, and it goes all the way until the return of Jesus. 
And these are what are known as the last days. They started when he ascended, and they will end when he returns. And so this is something that John was saying. It is the last hour. We are living in God's great last stanza of how he's dealing with mankind, sending the gospel out all over the world, people from every, every tribe and tongue and people and nation responding, churches sprouting all over the world, and the word of the gospel spreading, and the life of the church moving, and the persecution of the devil rising, and the wickedness of man ripening until the time when God brings judgment down upon the planet in, verse, in chapter 6 through 18 of Revelation. But at the same time, the planet brings itself to its own crisis, and Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 returns. We are in the last hour or the last days. So if you take that as a point of view, which I do, that it makes it interesting to interpret what else John says. He says, it is the last hour. We are in the last span of time of God dealing with humanity in the gospel hour. And since we are in the last hour, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, focused on the, fir or the middle phrase there, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. A couple things to point out here. The, the doctrine of the Antichrist was not something that was new to that church in A.D. 90. It was not something that was out there. It was not something that was taught on the fringe of Christian teaching. It wasn't something that only people that went to prophecy conferences in downtown Ephesus got all wound up about. It wasn't something they only saw on their Christian broadcasting network. Oh, they didn't have one then, I'm sorry. It wasn't for prophecy nuts. It was a doctrine and a teaching that all of them understood. It was something that Paul and John and the other apostles had had revealed to them by the Holy Spirit, and they taught this in the churches. And so the early church knew that an antichrist was coming. Now just stop there. What I told you earlier about what people believe or don't believe about the antichrist, if, if a good portion of the church today says it's not an important doctrine, in fact, we don't even believe it's literal. It's symbolic. It just means human evil. How does that square with the fact that John said, no, there's a very specific person coming. He is the Antichrist, and you have all heard about it. At least give me the respect of saying, hmm, maybe the teaching about the Antichrist is real. Does that make sense to you? These were early Christians without the New Testament formed yet, and yet that teaching was something that they had been given. Notice he's talking about a singular individual. Antichrist is singular, and he is coming at some time in the last hour. So John talks about a single person who is coming in the last hour. I believe this individual will rise and start the period of time known as the tribulation, seven years at the end of the last days. More on that in a minute. So you got a singular person that they all have been taught about who is coming but wasn't there yet. So that's the first part. And then you see the last part, even so now many antichrists have come. That's plural. And so it talks about two aspects of the Antichrist. One is he's going to be a real person who comes in real time in the future at the end of the last days. But before he comes, all kinds of people are going to show up who have the same principle of the Antichrist or the same spirit, the same teachings, the same darkness. 
they were arriving in the church in that time. Many antichrists have come. So you could look at it this way. The antichrist singular is with a capital A, and then the antichrists that have, have already, already existing are lowercase a. They're human beings with the same deception, but there is one coming who is super deceived. That one will come, and he'll begin the tribulation period. He'll become a world ruler who will be energized and indwelt by Satan himself. And he, more than any person in the history of the world, from then till now and into the future, till he comes, he will oppose Christ and oppose the church and seek to replace Christ at a level we've never seen. So, two aspects of the Antichrist, a real person who is coming, but also a spirit of Antichrist, or the pr people living according to the principles of the Antichrist are going to pop up in the life of the church until he comes. I hope you see the distinctions. This passage, verses 18 to 24, teach you about both. Now, before I can teach you about the principles of the Antichrist who have come and who plagued the church then and today, I need to spend this Sunday teaching you about the Antichrist, capital A, who is coming. Because you see, you can't understand what John taught those people if you don't understand what they already knew. And I'm telling you today, the church of Jesus Christ, particularly in the West, is woefully undertaught about the Antichrist who is coming. So I'm going to teach about this figure. I, I, I spoke about it when I came in, and one individual I talked to was quite excited. She, she said, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. And I said, I'm not so sure that's the attitude of other people. I mean, you know, some people come to church wanting to be uh, blessed, and, 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 I, and I understand that. But we're going to talk today about a somber subject, and I'm going to go over his career, and it is filled with amazing but dark things and yet in the end he's defeated by the lord jesus christ but yes if you understand that god's sovereign over the, even the most wicked man in the world yes you can say yes i'm excited about the fact that even the most wicked man in planetary history is overcome by my savior so in that sense she was right so today the person of the antichrist and then the next week or two, the principles of those that follow him today. So I'm going to just kind of hit you with three or two or three big points. The first is some perspective on why Antichrist is important. Uh, two things under this, I've already touched on them. The first is his biblicity. In other words, he's not a minor character in the scripture. Now, I, when I went through the Gospel of Luke, I taught you that, that uh, there was one individual who may have committed the deepest sin in human history. And I would say up till that time, and that was Judas Iscariot. And I taught you a lot about him. Um, Judas Iscariot, the man who committed the deepest sin, the betrayal of Jesus with the greatest revelation up to that time in human history. Big, big character. Lots of Christians know lots about Judas Iscariot. Care to guess how many verses in the, in the New Testament talk about Judas Iscariot? Big number? No, 36. That's it. But we know a lot about him. Care to guess how many verses in the New Testament talk about the Antichrist that's pictured here, the one who is coming? Well over a hundred. Whoa. So just based on biblicity, the number of times that the Bible talks about his deeds, I think we need to know about him. The second is his influence. His influence. One author I read this week put it this way, quote, some estimate that since the days of Adam, approximately 100 billion human beings have been born. Can you imagine? 
Over 8 billion are alive today. Did you know that? However, the greatest human in terms of being the most influential and consequential apart from Jesus himself, this author writes, has yet to make his appearance on our planet. The Bible predicts this satanic superman will splash onto the world scene and rule the world for the final three and a half years before the return of Christ. He plays a central role in the events of end times prophecy. More than 100 passages of scripture describe the origin, nationality, character, career, conquest, and doom of the final world ruler known as the Antichrist. Clearly, God wants his people to know something about the coming prince of darkness, end of quote. I think that's true. And so, under my watch, you will come out knowing more. Now, what I want to do, secondly, is just give you some perspective on what we know about him. And that's going to be the, the body of what remains in my message today. And I'm just going to go through certain points of knowledge, what his name means, when he will rise, what he will be like, and what life will be like under him. So those are the three things under this. Some perspective on what we know about him. I'm going to touch on some of the major biblical texts, but obviously don't have time for all 100 plus. First of all, what his name means, and I find a lot of people don't spend a lot of time on this, what his name means. So when you think about it, antichrist, and we think, okay, anti means against, and you know, I would say, good class, you're partly there, but you're going to have to stay after for study hall <laughs> because you're not all the way there. No, the Greek word anti means a lot more in this title. Chosen by the Holy Spirit is very important. Antichrist is the name most commonly associated with the final world ruler that I'm teaching you about. Although he is not spoken by, of by his name very often, his deeds and works are, are described most. The word antichrist in the Greek, antichristos, A-N-T-I-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S, two words, anti, against, or in place of, and Christos, Christ. The word antichrist, antichristos, occurs five times in the New Testament, so he's known more by what he does than what his name is, and how the Bible describes him. It appears in four verses in the epistles of John. 1 John 2.18, 2, 2.22, 4.3, and 2 John 1.7. So we're here at the very first appearance in the New Testament record in John's writings, 1 John 2.18. 1 John 2.18 refers to an antichrist, antichristos, singular, who is coming in the future. And then it refers, like I told you, to antichrist, plural. That would be antichristoi in the Greek, just to prove my point, who are already present. Using the singular, the Antichrist starkly contrasts the Antichrist in the plural. John's distinction, the one author writes, clearly denotes that the ultimate Antichrist will be a single individual. The Antichrists who are now here and who will be coming will be human false teachers who will be forerunners of the Antichrist and teaching in the same spirit. We'll talk about them next time. So th this author breaks down the fact that it's singular plural in the Greek, antichrist versus antichristoi. Now, the prefix anti, A-N-T-I, both in, in English, and that's how we transliterate the Greek, can mean against or opposed. So you got that right. Against or opposed to. So he's against Christ 
or opposed to Christ, and by connection, he will be against anyone who is for Christ. That's why he will persecute believers relentlessly throughout the period of the tribulation, particularly the last three and a half years. So he will indeed be opposed to uh, all the things of Christ. He will be the arch enemy and ultimate opponent of Jesus and of believers. But now here's the second part class. The word anti in Greek can also mean in the place of. In place of Christ. That is also going to be true of him because when you see what he's going to do in his career, he will be a counterfeit Christ, a mock Christ, a pseudo Christ, an imitation of Christ. In fact, he will put himself into the very temple of God and declare himself to be God. You can't get further in place of the mighty Lord Jesus Christ than that. Now, Jesus predicted the arrival of the Antichrist in in a verse that not many people really look at. It's first in John, the Gospel of, chapter 5, verse 43. He was talking to the Jews who rejected him. And he said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. That was a prophecy that another was coming who was going to put himself in the place of the great name, the person of Jesus Christ. That's the final false Messiah, the Antichrist. A.W. Pink, Bible scholar of the past, wrote it this way. He puts these both together. Quote, at every point, the Antichrist will be the antithesis of Christ. The word Antichrist has a double significance. Its primary meaning is one who is opposed to Christ. So we got that right. But its secondary meaning is one who is instead of Christ. Not only does Antichrist denote his antagonism of Christ, but it tells of one who is instead of Christ. The word signifies another Christ, an alter Christus, a pretender to the name of Christ. He will seem to be and will set himself up as the true Christ. He will be the devil's counterfeit. End of quote. So uh, a lot to understand here. But the Antichrist is going to arise and dominate the world, not just because he wants to dominate the world, not just because he hates humanity, not just because he's wicked to the core, it's because he he, he hates Christ. He'll be raised up by the devil to oppose everyone that loves Christ and to try and put himself in the place of Christ. The devil has wanted to rule the world since he fell in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. He has said, I will be like God. I will be above the Most High, and he wants to rule God's creation. And he will, he will attempt to do it through a pseudo-Christ, a representative of his own, a human representative of his power, known as the Antichrist. So this is all about spiritual warfare. It's all about wickedness, ultimately trying to defeat the greatness and the goodness of the God of the Bible. It's not just about some twisted figure who who manages to cook up to the top of world history and go farther than some other wicked figures did and then fall. This isn't just about a human conflict. It is about a supernatural conflict, a spiritual drama played out over the ages ever since Satan fell and tempted Adam and Eve into his same fall. The battle has been on ever since for the rulership and the glory of God. 
And for seven years, this will wage in its ultimate, ultimate levels with its ultimate power and its ultimate conflict. It'll wage on earth. It'll wage in heaven through angelic warfare. It'll wage, rage, wage behind, rage behind the scenes as believers suffer and Israel goes through the worst persecution of its history. And all of this will come to a climactic point where the only one who can defeat him comes back. And who will that be? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is a great story of supernatural conflict. So that's what his name means. There's a lot there. A second aspect of what we know, and there's many questions I can't answer today because of time, but I've tried to land on two or three that are critical. If that's what his name means, when is he going to rise? You see, people have said, well, he's risen and come and gone in the past. He'll come and go again. Oh, no. Here's the short version of the way I read my Bible. The Antichrist will debut on the world stage at the beginning of the tribulation and after the rapture. I'm going to repeat that. When will he rise? The short version is the Antichrist will debut on the world stage at the beginning of the tribulation and after the rapture. What's the tribulation? Seven years of final judgment upon the earth as God brings his final judgment down on the planet and upon the Antichrist and all those that obey him. Seven years of immense suffering for the church and for the Jewish nation. Seven years of increasing tribulation and judgment from God upon a wicked planet. What's the rapture? Oh, the rapture is a time when Jesus Christ, before this tribulation starts, returns invisibly in the sky, and he takes his church out of that coming time. And we go to be with him. The rapture of the church. So you might say, well, you know what? The way you, the way you just put that, the Antichrist isn't going to rise until the beginning of the tribulation and after the rapture. I like that after the rapture part. So do everybody does. It's a true believer. I meet people today saying, I wonder who the Antichrist is going to be. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I'm not going to be here. Neither are you, true believer. That's my firm conviction. You might differ, but I don't care. We say, well, well can we still kind of know? Let me put it this way, Pastor. Okay, I know we're not going to be here, but, 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 but are we close? Do you think he's around today? Do you, do you think it could all happen soon? I mean, look at everything that's happening around the world. Well, I can't say. But I do know that the Bible says that two prophecies do have to be fulfilled first. You're saying, what's, what's that all about? Well, two things. In my mind, as I read all the other scriptures that talk about what the Antichrist will do and how he will disrupt the world, there are two things that have to take place that the Bible says prophetically. The first is that Israel was going to have to become a nation again. Remember, as, as, as John wrote this, Israel had already been scattered. He wrote this in A.D. 90. In A.D. 70, Jerusalem was burned. The temple was destroyed ex exactly as Jesus had promised it would be. And the Jews had begun to be scattered across the then-known Roman Empire. And then, 
And of course, the great diaspora, the dispersing of the Jewish people began at that time. And when this was written, they were essentially becoming a non-people and Israel as a nation was no more. And yet, in the prophecy of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, we won't turn there, but in there, Daniel tells us that the Antichrist, when he comes to the height of his power, is going to have to do two things. One is he's going to have to sign a peace treaty with Israel. And the second thing is, three and a half years later, he's going to have to break it. Furthermore, he's going to have to break it by coming into the temple in Jerusalem, rebuilt by Israel, a place where Israel is, has reinstituted its sacrifices and its worship, and he is going to come and shut down that worship, desecrate the temple, set up an idol of his own image in it, and declare to him to the world that he must be worshipped as God. Now, in order for all of that to happen, guess who has to come back and become a nation again? From the dispersal of A.D. 70, Israel did. That's the, and of course, many, many prophecies, Ezekiel 36 to 37, Isaiah 66, Jeremiah 16 and 31, and others prophesied that that is exactly what was going to happen. So you not only have all the Old Testament, not all, but most of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel saying, no, though, though Israel is, is scattered, they will be re rejoined again as a nation and the Antichrist can't rise and do what the Bible prophesies he's going to do unless they're in the land, Jerusalem is in their hands, the temple has been rebuilt, and they're back to worshiping the God of the, of the Old Testament. All of that has to happen. Well, my friend, guess what happened on May 14th, 1948? What nation was born, just as the prophet said, in one single day? The nation of Israel. That's why I believe, you might think this is a little over the top, you can come and rebuke me later, but I think that that day may be the most important date in human history since the day of Pentecost. God began this great work of the church in the day of Pentecost. Israel was on the outside looking in, but God still had a plan for them according to Romans chapters 9 to 11. And I believe a great movement of the clock of the ages fell into place on May 14th, 1948, when David Ben-Gurion declared, Israel has been made a nation in a day. Nobody's ever seen anything like that, people, in world history. Nobody's ever seen a nation decimated for 2,000 years, almost, and then reformed. Nobody's ever seen a language decimated and desecrated and yet preserved for almost 2,000 years among a scattered people. Nobody has ever seen that in world history. Nobody's ever seen a culture shattered and persecuted and mocked and ridiculed and sought to be exterminated by the hand of man by the millions. Nobody's ever seen anything like that come and be reborn as a nation. Check your history. I actually checked my history, and according to Ezekiel 36 and 37, and Isaiah 66, and Jeremiah 16, and Jeremiah 31, my history says it was going to happen, and your history book said it did happen. 
May 14th, 1948. So um, of the two things prophetically that I think need to happen for the Antichrist to rise, the first one happened, my personal opinion. Well, what does the Bible say the second prophecy is that has to be fulfilled in order for the Antichrist to come on the scene? Well, the Bible prophesies in 2 Thess 2, and you can go there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that someone known as the restrainer has to be taken away. Makes sense, doesn't it? If the Antichrist will be the worst and the most evil human being ever to exist, and that by halfway through his reign, after he's assassinated and then raised from the dead, miraculously by the hand of the devil, and the whole world is in awe, he goes down in the abyss and then comes up again, and he is fully indwelt by Satan himself at that point. So you're talking about the arrival on the human scene of the most wicked human being who will ever live. That's who the Antichrist is. You would think that it would take a supernaturally powerful force to oppose Satan's plan, wouldn't you? If Satan wants to rule the world through that one man, you would have to think that a supernatural power would, would have to be required to oppose the work of Satan, wouldn't you? A lot of you guys don't know how powerful Satan is. So who would be the only one? The Holy Spirit. I believe that's who Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you can look beginning at verse 3. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, talking about the, the, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment at the end, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The Antichrist has many other names besides Antichrist. One of those is the man of lawlessness complete self-will against the will of God. In other words, Satanism. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, there's another name for him, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. I just told you about that. Proclaiming himself to be God, I just told you about that. He's writing to these Thessalonian believers, and he says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Let me pause there again. If the Antichrist is not a real person coming in the future, why would Paul have taught that young church in detail about him? Christians today say, oh, I don't want to get into Bible prophecy. It's just a minor part of the Word of God. Oh, yeah, 30% of your Bible was prophetic when it was written. Like I said before, do you want to go to a doctor who only specialized in 60% of medicine? You go into his office, you say, I'm telling you, doc, I've had these headaches for eight weeks. I can't see straight. He says, I'm sorry, I was in medical school, but I only start, studied from here down. <laughs> Do you know anybody? No, we just didn't think it was important. Prophecy gave hope to that church. It gives hope to this church. He says, don't you remember that I taught you all about this when I was still with you, verse 5, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, the work of people with the spirit of Antichrist moving through the world and the churches, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So the restrainer is not a what, it's a who. And I believe it's the Holy Spirit. Now what event, can you imagine, would 
would, would, would trigger the Holy Spirit's restraining influence being taken away from the system of, of human experience and human life on earth. I'll tell you what, there's one that I just told you about. It's called the rapture of the church. The rapture is the best explanation I find for that. You may differ because that's going to be a point when every Christian in the world is taken up to heaven and there will be no one left to represent and speak up for righteousness. And the, 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 the walls will be down, not only for lawlessness to move through people, but lawlessness to arrive in the form of a man who will lead them into the depths of it, the Antichrist. The one who's holding him back now is the Lord, the Holy Spirit through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, when the rapture comes, it'll be the first time in generation upon generation when there will not be one person on planet earth that knows God. Anywhere. Not one person. Incredible. Now, it's hard to say how many will be Involved in the rapture experience, I think hundreds of millions personally. If you take a look at the church growing across the world today, particularly in the third world, it's, it's measures bigger than the church in America, but let's just say hundreds and hundreds of millions of people disappear in a rapture moment. What do you think the world's going to be like the next morning? One author put it this way, quote, the global chaos that results from the rapture's devastation on humanity will create a massive void filled with panic at every level. Entire countries will collapse, thrusting the world's economy into a dark abyss. There will be confusion and upheaval at every segment of society, economically, socially, militarily, politically, medically, and morally, into the, not to mention the human breakdowns. Can you imagine what's going to happen to people when people that they knew who were believers and they weren't are suddenly disappeared from their world? A global mental breakdown. Into this crisis, he writes, will step the man of Satan's own choosing, having been groomed by Satan for this very moment. Now, historically, in world history, Populations have accepted promises of hope and change in order to lift them out of despair and emotional darkness. And this post-rapture crisis will be like none other in history. And the greater the need, the greater this false Messiah's persona and ego will be. He will be the world's greatest opportunist and romance, cajole, and deceive billions to accept him as the man for this hour, end of quote. Two prophecies, the Bible says, have to be in place. One is Israel will have to become a nation again. I think we've seen that happen. Did you know right now there's an institute in Jerusalem that's fully funded the rebuilding of the temple? All the funds are there. Did you know that all the articles that go into a new temple have already been manufactured according to the specifications in the Old Testament? They're all being held did you know that, a, that research has been done into the family lines to discern who is clo most closely related to the tribe of Levi, who can be reformed as a line of priests to conduct sacrifices in a newly built temple in Jerusalem? Did you know that among the conservative Jewish population in Israel today, that's already sitting in place? 
Never happened in history before. That prophecy, I think, has been fulfilled. You may differ. All that is needed prophetically is for the restrainer to be taken away. You say, when is it going to happen? Are we close? We're as close as the rapture. I'll just leave you with that. Well, now I've got to run. Like always. Last statement is, what will he be like? In other words, what will the reign of Antichrist be like? Remember, the rapture will have been done. You and I will not be here. Chaos will have erupted globally. The Antichrist will have stepped into the vacuum. He will have arisen. And by the power of Satan, he will have been able to deceive the world into a semblance of world order and peace. I'm going to give you just in rapid-fire fashion the major pieces of how his reign will go and how it ends. Number one, he will be immensely persuasive. That's how he's going to step into the void and he's going to politically and personally and emotionally mesmerize the world with his words. Again, A.W. Pink talks about this. The Antichrist will have a mouth speaking very great things according to the prophet Daniel in Daniel 7 verse 8. He will have a perfect command and flow of language. His oratory will not only gain attention, but respect. Revelation 13, 2 declares that his mouth will be as, quote, the mouth of a lion, end quote, which is a symbolic representation telling of the majesty and awe-producing effects of his voice. The voice of a lion excels that of any other animal, so the Antichrist will outrival orators ancient and modern. He will be able to persuade the world about anything. He'll be able to do that, not just because of his human gifting and the need of the hour, but don't forget, he is satanically powered and God is going to let it happen. So man will walk into his own judgment. Second, he'll be a broker of peace. Now there's a lot of things that'll happen. Daniel chapter seven describes him as as uniting uh, the nations that many believe represented what were the old Roman Empire, it's hard to say, but a ten-nation confederacy, a group of ten. He'll be elected by that group of ten to rule over the entire world, Revelation 17. And he will become the consummate unifier and diplomat around the world, and he'll acquire power and credibility. He'll even have the ability, according to what the Scripture prophesies, to temporarily solve the Middle Eastern political situation. You think, gee, do you think that might be an issue? (laughs) Do you think we're on the edge of that era? But the Bible says he will actually create a peace agreement with Israel, Daniel chapter 9. He'll bring such peace to the Middle East that the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem will be returned to Jewish sovereignty, Daniel chapter 9 and the temple rebuilt. So he will be a broker of peace, there's no question about it. And for a period of time early in the tribulation, though the judgments of God are beginning to fall and stir, mankind on its own will look at itself and say, we're moving into the peace we always thought we could achieve. This man will lead us there. Even Israel will be deceived by him and begin to believe he himself is their Messiah. So in those early years, he will be a broker of peace. 
a man of great world power, immensely persuasive. But then thirdly, he will ultimately become a breaker of peace, not just with Israel, but all over the world. The world will have been under his thrall for three and a half years, but he will then, through a series of actions, force the world under his control and begin to exert dictatorial rule. If you go to Revelation chapter 13, you will see that he's assassinated, he rises from the dead under the power of Satan, and then he's fully indwelt by Satan. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, Revelation 13, 3, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they what? Followed the beast, world rule. And they worshiped the dragon for Satan himself, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? In other words, the world will lay down its resistance to the military and political and human domination of this satanically empowered world dictator. It will all be over by verse 4. No one will be able to stand against him. He will be a breaker of the peace. He will force the world under his control. And then... He will, he will devastate Israel by invading it, breaking his peace agreement with them, desecrating the temple, setting himself up in it as God with an image demanding worship of the Antichrist. That's in Daniel 9, Matthew 24, Luke 21, other places. So things turn from dark to darker at three and a half years. Four at the same time, he will proclaim himself to be God. Revelation 13, verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words against who? Against the God of the Bible. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, heaven itself. That is, those who dwell in heaven. So you see, that, that it was allowed to happen. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. He'll demand worship, and here's the frightening part. He'll get it from everyone who does not take his mark, from everyone who does not bow the knee to Satan's Savior. He'll proclaim himself to be God, this immensely persuasive man who's initially a broker of peace, then a breaker of peace, then a dominator of the world, who proclaims himself to be God and receives the worship of the world except for those who are believers or a portion of the nation of Israel that comes to its senses and says, we cannot worship this one, and they begin to be persecuted. That's the next thing he'll do. He'll persecute believers everywhere who refuse to take the mark and refuse to worship him as God, who worship only the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll persecute every believer he can find who will not bow the knee, and believers don't. And he'll persecute the Jewish nation because they will realize the error of their ways and they will refuse to worship him and they come under great persecution. Two-thirds of the nation of Israel will probably be exterminated by this wicked man over the last three and a half years. Revelation chapter 13, again, verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and it will require at the end of verse 10 the endurance and faith of the saints. 
Believers will be persecuted because they will not bow the knee. And Jews will be persecuted simply because Satan has hated the Jewish people ever since they were put together by God. Who said, these are my people. These are the apple of my eye. Satan hates everything that God loves. And Satan hates the Jewish people also because they bore the Messiah, didn't they? They were the people chosen to be the ones through whom the great one who would crush Satan's head would come. He hates them for the birth and the reign of Jesus Christ. But also some have said that Satan wants to exterminate all Israel. They wanted to kill every Jew in the future because the Bible says that Jesus will not return until a the, the, the remnant of Jews who remain at the end of all of this see their Savior for who he really is. And faith sweeps through the, Israel, the, the Jewish nation of the future and they turn and embrace Jesus Christ, Yeshua, as their Messiah. And when that happens, Zechariah says, then he comes back. So in the twisted mind of the devil, he thinks, well, the Jews are going to have to believe in Jesus for Jesus to come back if there's no Jews left, there'll be no return. That's how twisted his mind is. To his very end, he'll never believe that Jesus keeps his promises. Perhaps that's why he will come in such hateful persecution. Last, and I'm closing now. He'll enforce a one-world economy. This is the thing that he's most famous for, but Revelation chapter 13 again, verse 16 also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Everybody arguing about what the name means, the number means. We do not know. We do know that it's Satan's mark. And if you're a true believer, you cannot and will not take it. That is all you need to know. He'll do this by force, ruling people by force, feeding the, the people of the world only by force, persecuting them by force for three and a half years. Toward the end of that time, as his wrath against Israel grows and against believers, and as his reign begins to, to totter under the world's resistance to him, he defies Christ. Revelation 19, verse 11 19, chapter 19, please, verse 11, talks about this. It's, let me go to it. One, one other thing first. Matthew 24 says that toward the end of his reign, the devil in great rage is going to surround God's city, Jerusalem, once again. He's going to lead the nations of the world against it to finally exterminate the Jewish people and to take a swipe at the apple of God's eye. All the nations of the world will be surrounding the city and at that point, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. Now we go to Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So... This will all gather to a final, this will all gather to the final point where it started in the beginning. Satan's rage against God and his son. 
And, the, and it, it began in the beginning with Satan's rebellion and the fall and the deceiving of man. It's carried all the way through the ages till today and beyond. And in that final moment, it will be the same great conquest, the same great battle, Satan and his rage against God and his son and the son defeating him and crushing his head in final form, devastating him. So the good news is the evil is ended. The wickedness is defeated because here's the last point. He is destroyed forever in the lake of fire. Verse 20, Jesus confronts him and with a word, the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Hell itself. So a deceptive, dramatic beginning, a complete and eternal end. Evil will be defeated. Wickedness will die. Sin will be judged. Rebellion will be finished. And the greatness of Jesus will be seen and his kingdom will go on world after world without end. Amen? You see, now people listening to this story hear it in two ways. Some of them hear it like you, for you've read your Bibles, but more importantly than that, you know the author. You know the Lord Jesus Christ. You know and understand sin and wickedness and evil. You understand and long for his return. And so you would say, even so, come Lord Jesus. But a skeptic would listen to this and say, you know, preacher, everything you said is pretty hard to believe. Wow. This end of the world story is kind of out there. Well, you know, I, I, I kind of look at how the world considers its own end, and there's, because of things that are going on around the the world right now, there's bit, every time the year turns in January, there's a study by different think tanks about the state of the world and what's going to happen in the next year, right? 2024. And then some of them also think they, they come up with their own lists about how the world could end. You think, wow, pastor, you've got a weird hobby. I, I do. But I looked at the latest list by scientists. These are guys with alphabet letters after their names about how they say the world will not. I just spent 40 minutes telling you about what the Bible says about the end of time and the end of how this is all going to happen. You think it's out there. Really? I looked at a top 10 list of, of the way that scientists think this year that the, the, the world could eventually end. Here's the top four from the top, the top 10 list. Asteroids. Killer robots, that's their phrase, not mine. Aliens, I guess we could say angry aliens. Nice aliens would probably buy a timeshare here or something, but angry aliens. This is serious stuff from scientists. Or, and this is a new one, I've never seen this in any of the lists, the world will end because we will be swallowed by the sun. Okay. So if you think what I just told you is a little out there, don't go to college. Don't read Science Magazine. 
because they say, no, it's going to be by an asteroid invasion or killer robots or angry aliens, or we may end up just being swallowed by the sun. Which one is the more out there? Let me, let me ask you this. What are we more in danger of? Killer robots or the sin of man? Do you realize that everything is in place in our human culture today for everything I just told you from the book of Revelation and the man of sin to happen? Everything. All the pieces are in place. All the nations that I've referred to are existing. All the armies that will march exist. And the dark hearts that have had a habit of enshrining dictators and giving up their freedoms and being deceived by the millions, has it happened before? Yes, it will ripen and happen in ultimate terms. All the pieces are on the board for everything I've told you to happen, especially in the darkness of the human heart and the foolishness of the human mind. Oh, it won't take killer robots. We already possess everything needed to act out this drama. So instead of saying, yeah, right, you might consider saying, hmm, how am I related to this Jesus? It's a somber story, and it's a grim story, but like I said, if you're a believer today, you won't see the Antichrist or suffer him. So... Do you know Jesus today? Oh, you must know him or you will live through what God never intended for you. Trust him as Savior today. Admit your sin in silent prayer to him. Turn to him and thank him for his death on the cross for you. Ask him into your life. Commit to follow him. See what he does. Accept him as your Savior today. Last thing, and I know I'm right at the edge here. You might be thinking, well, if, if I'm going to be raptured as a Christian, why do I need to know all this about the Antichrist? Why, well, why was it put in your Bible? Okay, God thinks you need to know about it. Two reasons. One is to warn those who don't know Jesus yet about the harrowing times to come and the one to come, and I just did that. The second is to warn ourselves about what John talked about and what we'll start to look at next week, the spirit of Antichrist. I've just told you about the person of Antichrist, but now, next time, I want to talk about the spirit of Antichrist that John talks about, that he warned his readers about. That exists today. It's a spirit of standing against the true Jesus that was present in John's time among false teachers, and it's present in ours. It's the principle of evil that powers Antichrist, and it's around today, and we will explore that next time. 